I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday, and I just finished eating a biscotti. <laughs> and I am Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to episode 25 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. This episode marks the end of our first full year of podcasting. It's been quite a ride. Yeah, hooray for us. Occasionally bumpy, enormously fun. And since it's that time of year, we thought we'd celebrate by spending the next hour talking about the best and worst of theater in 2018 on and off Broadway and elsewhere in America. Well, and as we talk about uh, the best and the worst of the year... Uh, I'm still thinking, actually, about what the worst experience of my uh, theater year was. I have a lot of thoughts about the best. Uh, And between us, we probably have seen the bulk of what goes on, and probably uh, in in terms of what's important to see for critics, uh, but it, 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 uh, uh, it does give us a lot of turf to surf here, uh, a lot of terrain to surf in terms of uh, what we're going to tell you about. So, um, in addition to Talking about the highlights and the lowlights, um, we thought we'd start out by taking a look at the trends uh, we've seen or the trends we thought we saw <laughs> uh, on the American scene in the past year. I'll start the bar rolling. I think we all noticed a significant uptick in the number of straight plays that are being produced on Broadway, both last season and during the first half of the 2018 season. I'd like to think it's a sign of something good in American theater. But to be perfectly honest with you, I think it's better understood as a symptom of something bad, which is that the Broadway musical is now well into an extended period of creative decline. One that has has arguably been going on ever since I became the drama critic of the Wall Street Journal 15 years ago, maybe longer. You can see it in the best musical Tony nominations. Aside from the quality of the shows that get nominated, the absolute number of contenders has been shrinking pretty steadily for some time now. That's the bad news. The good news is that the product of the operation of what political scientists call the law of unintended consequences is that because there are fewer new musicals, we are indeed seeing many more straight plays on Broadway. In this season alone, I think I've got them all here, we've seen American Son, Bernhard Hamlet, The Ferryman, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Lifespan of a Fact, The Nap, Network, and Straight White Men, as well as revivals of The Boys in the Band, Torch Song, and The Waverly Gallery, with more to come uh, in the second half of the season, including the first King Lear to open on Broadway since 2004. Now, that's nothing compared to Broadway a half century ago, and the quality of these plays is all over the map, but the fact that there are so many of them is, I think, quite definitely a trend and definitely worthy of note. Yeah, you know, actually, you know, pound for pound, if you look back at some of the lists of the plays that what we considered, you know, plays on Broadway in the 60s and 70s, I dare say the quality actually may be higher now. I mean, there was real junk. That, mm-hmm. that would just get shoveled onto Broadway. Yeah. Real, uh, you know, you know, journeyman and less lesser plays that just didn't really, uh, that just seemed like commercial crap. That those things uh, have gone by the wayside. Many of the things that you describe, many of the shows that you described, even the ones that didn't work uh, uh, terrifically, uh, were 
uh, you know, attracted really interesting actors or had uh, have had uh, 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 things to say in different ways and have, are even but attracting audiences. I, I'm going to say that also that the caliber of acting, uh, I mean, I wasn't there like 50 or 60 years ago, so I can't, but I'm suspecting that the caliber of acting is has maintained or, or gone up even um, based on absolutely zero scientific... <laughs> Evidence. Yeah. But when, when when you read the William Goldsman the season, you read about some of these shows, and you're like, that that was the golden age. Oh dear God, that just. Um, and I think really in terms of getting different voices on Broadway, the improvement has been significant. Do you think the, there's a correlation between Terry's observation that you know there is a you, a, a distinct decline in the quality of the musicals we're seeing this season, and the the, the resurgence of plays. Is it that uh, producers are shifting their resources to things they think have more quality in them? I don't think it has anything to do with quality necessarily. What it has to do with is, if your theater is empty, you're losing money, and uh, if there aren't six new musicals and three really good revivals coming in this season. You've got to put something in, and maybe it'll be a really good play. Maybe it'll be The Nap. Maybe it'll be Springsteen on Broadway. You know, maybe it'll be a bunch of, of magicians or, a, or a, a stand-up comedian doing an evening in, of what I think of as a pseudo-play. But at the very least, there is an economic pressure to put something else on Broadway to fill those houses. And it kind of stands to reason that this at least increases the chances that that something else will be something good, or at least something not awful. What's, well, actually, you talk about economic pressure, but I think a, a problem, a big issue, is that the cost of creating a new musical can be exorbitant. You, you want to risk, like, whatever, like 15, 16 millions and lose it all? Maybe it's better to risk 5 million on a play and maybe you know make a little profit and you know you get a couple of screen people with names and 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 you're good although i've got to say like the play that i'm really looking forward to the most this spring is a play by a playwright doing his broadway uh debut Taylor Mac, and he's managed to get <laughs> nathan lane and andrea martin i mean that is staggering if that's the future of broadway like i'm totally on board with that silent scene so far well Boy, that's something that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago for sure. And I, I, you mentioned in passing, Elizabeth, uh, William Goldman's, Goldman's, Goldman, mm -hmm. help me, William Goldman's <laughs> yeah, Goldman. season, you know, maybe the best book ever written about Broadway, written back in the 70s. Uh, he died recently. I reread it. Uh, and he was just horrified at the quality of, of the average show, mm -hmm. the average straight play that opened on Broadway. And of course... What we now can tell in retrospect is that all those shows, so to speak, moved to network TV. That that kind of second-rate sitcom-y humor, things like that, that's where that ended up. Mm. And uh, the, uh, I mean, Broadway has undergone long-range changes in quality and character over the last century. Um, we now live in a time where it's not possible to open a show, a new play cold on Broadway, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, without a movie star. That's one big change and a bad one. But on the other hand, you can have 
really quite surprising shows on Broadway if you can get the muscle of a star name that will keep the show open for two or three months. Well, also you have, I, I do think we have to take note of the fact that uh, I think some stars are taking more chances. Mm-hmm. They're not looking for, you know, to do the 15th production of Glass Menagerie necessarily. Yep. You've got, you had uh, Daniel Radcliffe, for example, in Lifespan of a Fact. You have Brian Cranston doing Network. You have uh, 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 Chris Evans, for God's sakes, in a, uh, in a, a, uh, play by uh, Kenny Kenneth. Lonergan and Lonergan yeah. is uh, you know had three plays on Broadway in the last two years two yeah. and a half years three it's, years I mean there is a momentum and maybe producers are, are catching Army that Hammer in, in, in Straight White Man that's crazy yeah 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 no there's more um, interest from I think actors in finding material they can make their own as opposed to necessarily trying to mm-hmm. uh, surf a show that already uh, existed and also right. I do think that maybe there was a backlog last year a lot of plays were scared off the, the, the main stem uh, so to speak by uh, Harry Potter which seemed to be such a juggernaut I think a lot of producers shied away from mm-hmm. uh, running up against that so there's a flu- there's there was a little bit of a of a, a waiting line that that needed to uh, be uh, the door needed to be opened again this season we'll see if this continues or if it's a, a bur- uh, you know just a, a momentary uh, 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 wrinkle uh, not wrinkle but, but clearly good development. right but we all do see that something in this line is happening and it's interesting Peter I know you've got your eye on a related trend right clearly no less worthy of scrutiny here yeah there's a there's been this extraordinary to me uh, 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 rise of young female playwrights but I think women in general are are their voices are being heard in the theater much more vibrantly than and, and I don't think it's just a you know a, a mirror image of you know the fact that there are now going to be a hundred women in Congress and we're just trying to get women into the mainstream of which is such a ridiculous idea to think that more than half the population has to be brought up to the level. <laughs> right. so stupid. But think about this. You know, I, I, you could dare say that Paula Vogel and Lynn Nottage are among the most esteemed playwrights in America now. They, they, they occupy that first rank uh, that maybe people, you, you, you can't call them the, the latter-day Williams and Miller, but I mean they are doing plays of conscience and social import the way those playwrights did it and are being recognized for it. Then think of the names you're hearing, the new names, Claire Barron, Alicia Harris, Young Jean Lee, Martina Mayuk, who won the Pulitzer Prize, Jackie Sibley's Drury, Sarah DeLapp, Dominique Morisot, Eleanor Burgess, Jocelyn Bio. I mean, you can go on and on. And these are all, I've named uh, uh, playwrights who've all been uh, reviewed positively and more by uh, critics of all stripes so there's a and the, this was a this runs the gamut it's it's a diverse group it's black women it's women of uh, it's all women of all color and white women it's it there's a there's something happening and I think it's partially a, a res- the response of the regional theater movement to understanding that these voices have to be fostered and brought along but these are now you know they're all coming onto Broadway as well well not well, okay, well, l- look at how long it took Paula Vogel and, and Lynn Nottage to finally make it to Broadway. Right. So Ridiculous. it's still, they definitely have a much longer curve. Lucas Nath got onto, Bro- and Josh Harmon are young playwrights who got on Broadway, it looks to me yeah. from the outside, fairly easily. Mm. 
You know, Josh Harmon gone on to Broadway. Both of them a few years after they made their debut off and off off. That is crazy. Meanwhile, you have Annie Baker or some of the, you know, that we've Amy Herzog. Amy Herzog are still... No, that, there's a huge problem. And then, you know, Lucas Ness has another play. I don't want to take away from them. Well, but we, don't have to, we don't have to make being on Broadway the only measure. No, no, it's, no, it's not. And it, it's, it's, it's not an artistic measure, but I really do think it means a lot in terms of national recognition and also for them to be able to make a living because we, we know that it's very, very hard to make a living of Broadway. It, Financially, all, it's very difficult. True. And we also have a, we, we, we do not have a large group of female producers to recognize the voices. And let's face it, you need, sometimes you need women advocating for women. I mean, you have Daryl Roth and Stacey Mindich are the two commercial producers. Sonia Friedman. Sonia Friedman, a very important, absolute, but she's English. So I was right. thinking American producers. Oh, Amer- yeah. But well. of course, Sonia Friedman is a huge player now, too. But uh, what but we you do need have- more of those. What we do so, have are women directors, right? And I think that that is as much of a, a of a dramatic change as as playwrights. Uh, I mean, and they go hand in hand. Uh, you're women directors. I think it stands to reason are going to be conscious of these these issues. Uh, and whether I, I don't say that women are going to direct women's plays necessarily better or worse. I don't think theater works that way, but they're certainly likely to think, why am I not getting a chance to direct plays by women? And when you have these directors who are, well, I, I, I've said this on the program before, but I noticed about a year ago that all of the younger directors who were at the top of my list of people that I'd go to see to, to, to see a show because they were directing it were women. And that really took me by surprise. Rebecca Tachman won the Tony for Indecent. Uh, uh, Lee Silverman and uh, Lila Neugebauer are the th- are three of the hottest directors in America now. They are now mm-hmm. being considered for 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 Broadway and assignments. L- and, and Liliana Blaine Cruz also. I mean, yeah, there's and just there's more behind them. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but but those. I'm just saying that you know you need those mm-hmm. you need those people to es- become established names. Because they sort of they become the 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 examples to show to other uh, women mm-hmm. uh, who are aspiring to that role. One right. pulls one pulls the other up. I mean, right. lifts all boats. Well, well, it's it actually you know it kind of the, the the talk of directors here that kind of dovetails uh, into the thing that I have been struck with this year, which is that I've uh, this year I saw four productions of musicals that are usually that are now seen as quote-unquote problematic and they were four very very good productions uh that managed to make these musicals work i I can't think of a better word right now and so this year uh, i saw productions ranging from very good to extraordinary of carousel my fair lady carmen jones and oklahoma Mm. which to me, if that says one thing, it's like there's just there's almost no bad show. There's only a bad director, and these shows were all entrusted to directors who knew exactly what to do with them. And I really think they solved whatever issues you could have with these shows in 2018. They all work for me. These shows have been criticized for being, to various degrees, uh, 
sexist or, 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 or racist or having this kind of baggage. And I felt those productions, um, two on Broadway, two off Broadway, really worked. And I, there's actually talk about this rumor that, that Oklahoma will transfer. I don't know if that's... You mean the St. Anne's Warehouse production? Yeah, the St. Anne's Warehouse that, that Daniel yeah. Fish did, uh, which, you, did you guys see it? I absolutely loved it. I didn't. Uh, and... I, I, hear, I hear it's right. Revolutionary. It was. Yeah, I, do too. I, I really wish someone would bring it back, and I think maybe at Circle in the Square. It needs to They're be talking very, about Circle in the Square. It would be a great production I think there. That's what I've read. But so that to me means that you can really, to, if you have a director with ideas and who's not afraid to look at the material and look at the show with not just a new eye but also respect for the material, because those shows have strong bones. They have, there's, they are beautiful, they have beautiful stuff going for them. I, I just, I can't bring myself, you know, the people who throw the baby with the bathwater and reject My Fair Lady or, by the way, a show I've never really liked until this year, until I saw that Bartlett Chair production. I was not a My Fair Lady fan. Now I'm a convert. I'm a convert to My Fair Lady. Um, Carmen Jones, likewise, the show has problems. John Doyle's production made it work. Mm. Uh, for me at least, and not necessarily by pushing the problems to the side, but just by tackling them head on. It's really brave, and it also assumes that the audience is smart enough to follow your choice. If your choice is thought through and carried through with integrity, the audience will follow you, and really you can't go wrong not underestimating the audience's intelligence, and it mm. works for all four of these shows. Now I have I have mixed feelings about some of these solution productions. Uh, we've talked <laughs> about My Fair Lady. Uh, you, you use the word respect, and I think that that production in some ways disrespects the <gasps> the real relationship between the musical of My Fair Lady and the play on which it's based. And uh, and and I, it just did not work for me for that reason. We've got a real test case coming up in the next half of the season, and that's uh, Kiss Me Kate, mm. which is one of the, if any musical yeah. these days is problematic, it's Kiss Me Kate, which is no longer ever licensed other than in a, a version in which the book has been significantly changed. Oh, wow. I didn't uh, know that. Uh, just like Annie Get Your Gun. And um, so we'll see. I mean, if Kiss Me Kate is a classic of American musical theater, and I believe that it is, then we ought to be able to find a way to stage it that respects its nature and doesn't denature it uh, while nevertheless making it work in terms of audience expectations. And uh, that can be awfully tricky. Uh, I mean, more and more people are, I think more and more companies are steering away from Taming of the Shrew for precisely that reason. Mm -hmm. They simply cannot find a way to stage it that they f believe is politically palatable and um well we'll see what happens we'll see what happens uh, you're absolutely right elizabeth this is a major major trend uh, in american musical comedy production there's just no question about it because and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast we're not getting lots of new musicals that are clearly destined to enter the permanent repertory of classic american musicals if that if that's true then we have to find ways to make the ones that we've already got uh, work in contemporary terms. And that's gonna take 
a lot of different kinds of, of creative imagination, a willingness to be surprising, but also a willingness to be daring and a willingness to maybe sometimes give offense. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think that the I, I think it's it goes back to what you said, Elizabeth, about integrity. The 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 these works, the ones we that that do work when you 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 can put a slightly different spin on them, really reveal the integrity of the original piece, and that's that's the real test. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there are some musicals that it doesn't work for uh, without radical uh, revision. And that's when it, and then you twist them out of shape, and they don't—they're no longer the thing they were or are. Right. And and so you have to, you know, you, some things you do have to let go, or just treat in their original form and say, uh, people, this 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 is, you know, this pa- time has passed it by, but it's it's worth us uh, considering it in some form other than probably a long commercial right. run. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we've noticed in the past year. So let us move on to the rogues gallery i don't doubt <laughs> i don't doubt that both of you endured at least one thing that was particularly awful on the aisle in 2018 i sure did i What's confess yours? well i confess to being in a bit of a loss to know so we're which going to the, the worst of the year this is what you're doing, we're starting year. with okay this we'll get it. that out of the way right i i confess to being at a bit of a loss to know which musical i hated more king kong <laughs> or escape to margaritaville <laughs> Probably King Kong, since it didn't have anything tolerable to offer but the rubber gorilla, and a very nice performance by Christiani Pitts as, shall we say, the gorilla's girlfriend. Whereas Escape to Margaritaville actually had some decent songs as well as some good acting. I really like Lisa Howard, for instance. But King Kong was a very strong contender for my personal booby prize, the worst musical I've ever reviewed. I wow. rank it right. Yeah, I rank it right down there with. Here's my list: Bombay Dreams, Uh-oh. Good Vibrations, right. oh my In God. My Life, Lennon, and Taboo. And I think that after <gasps> I really due like consi- Taboo. Yes, after due I consideration, I might give the big booby to King Kong. Dance of the Vampires. Wow. Do you remember Dance of the Vampires? Oh, yeah. oh, that, oh, that was one. another one. So, you... so uh, I would. Um, so okay. Escape to Margaritaville was, you know, infuriating. King Kong was execrable. Uh, uh, but I I felt like with Escape to Margaritaville, at least it was trying, it was, what do you, how do I describe, maybe new in the sense that the story was manufactured for that, for the stage. Uh, King Kong at least had the monkey, but <laughs> the worst musical and worst uh, piece for me of 2018 was Don't. Pretty Woman. Oh, okay, yeah. Which to me is a completely, it's an abdication. It's an abdication of what theater does. <laughs> and that is just to uh, become a Madame Tussauds of fame, of, of, from, the, from the movie library. And I found absolutely nothing to celebrate or even to hang on to the moment I left that theater, except the thought of um, my subway ride home. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with Peter on that one. I felt King Kong and Margaritaville were just innocuously bad, and I was, I couldn't find it in in me to be riled up by then. I was just kind of, I was bludgeoned into kind of, I, I wouldn't say acceptance, but just boredom and actually i had like some the friend i saw king kong with and i had some really good laughs i mean 
at the show, not with the show. Um, so just for that, but I would agree that uh, Pretty Woman is an exercise in cynicism that is hard to top. Uh, and at this point, there's absolutely no reason to do that story right now. Boy, I mean, if we, we fixed Oklahoma and, and all that, but I don't think there's anything fixable about that story. That is just not, like even, <laughs> you know what? In 15 years, Evo Van Hove is gonna do a revival and I'm gonna be really sorry that I said that. <laughs> it's gonna be horrendous. There are certain jokes we mustn't make here. Oh, no, no, oh, sorry. Um, so for me, I would say one of the plays that really irked me uh, is a play I saw recently, actually, and that is being received quite well, and it is Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris, who's a, a young playwright. He's still in school. He's still at, uh, at Yale. Drama. Yale drama. So he's graduate school, and it is a play that is embarrassing in, his, in its self-satisfaction and the way it revels in this empty provocation that is not really provoking because people are just expecting it. Um, and provocation, when people expect it, does not work. Uh, it is also written in an incoherent, smug manner that I found really, really annoying. Just the the ineptitude of the writing was confounding. I, I felt it is this play is it was still it should have stayed in the oven. It was not ready to be pulled out. Uh, it was just not ready for that. And the problem is that it's very difficult to say that in a way because it is a play that purports to uh, kind of mm, it's this play of self-conscious transgression that purports to look at the racism that is what undergirds the American society, fine, but an Octoroon and Underground Railroad Games did the exact same thing a lot better and in a much funnier way than Slave Play does. And Slave Play coming on the heels of these two shows um, feels like a, a vacuous exercise in, in, in really, really empty transgression. Mm. I, just, I'm kind of really annoyed really at it. You just used a really interesting phrase, Elizabeth, self-conscious trans transgression. I think you put your finger on something there. And actually reading the script afterwards, it, it annoyed me even more. The, the script uh, is, is a window into the way this playwright's mind work that is uh, just not, uh, not really all that interesting. Um, I, I was very disappointed by it. And also, frankly, you know what? If, if you are shocked by... Uh, a white plantation owner pegging her uh, mulatto slave with a black dildo. If you find that shocking, I'm really sorry, but you are just uh, you are you are uh, you are a target that is sitting still. <laughs> I, I think we should have a longer. I think there's a real interesting discussion to be had about uh, what has become a you know a, a, a recurring. Uh, preoccupation of of theater these days, which is you know how we how do we discuss race on a stage? It's 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 really broken out this year. It's been yeah. happening, you know, with the work of people like Brandon Jacob Jenkins and Jackie Sibley's Drury. Uh, you know, over and over, we're seeing this these subjects this subject um, discussed, and I dare say, 
you know, it would be great if there were a few more African-American critics well, to engage with on this subject because in some ways uh, it, 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 it really does require, you know, uh, uh, talking across um, a spectrum of, of, well, of, 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 of uh, experience and, and also the the thing we we have to keep in mind also what when I'm saying about slave play is that and I've said that on a previous podcast I really believe that the most interesting American playwrights right now are all African American what they're doing with like with the aesthetic and the the the, the, the their technique and their adventurousness and the way they're willing to just you know mess with plays themselves I'm talking about yeah, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and um, Jack Sibley's Drury and Antoinette Duandou, whose uh, Passover at Lincoln Center was absolutely fantastic. They're really, I, I cannot, I mean, nobody comes close to what the radical way they're looking at, at theater right now. But Safe Play is just the follower there. It is not the leader. Interesting. I'm glad you mentioned a play, Elizabeth. It, it, it seems to me interesting that Peter and I sort of went directly to musicals uh, to find our booby prizes. Mm. Um, it, somehow it strikes me that a musical has the potential to be even more awful than a play simply because of the resources right. that are poured into it. I mean, you just feel this gross sense of disproportion when mm, you, you right. see something like King Kong and you just think about, think of all the, nice little four character plays that could have been mounted uh, just to pay for the puppeteers and it breaks your heart or 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 big plays i want i want to see big plays that's actually i think that's one of the reasons the ferryman is so successful on broadway because people want to see a play with a lot of people yes. it's not a four character play they're not sitting on a couch this is a play with a huge cast the, for me it it was similar in that to august osage county it is a commercial play that is very, very well done. The craft level is really through the roof. It's got a big cast, and you feel like the ferryman creates the excitement that musical ca can create because there is this, this it's, it has this heft. It has this scope. It's three hours long. It's, it's huge. It's not three people on a couch, and it's, I, I found it really exciting to see that. And I can't believe I'm saying that, but I kept, because I hated Jess Butterworth's previous plays. I, they were just so awful. And I was so happy to see that I really loved this one. Well, we have a whole generation of American playwrights who will never write plays with more than six people in the cast. And we really lost something because of that. And maybe we've done enough damage for one podcast, so let, <laughs> let us move on to a much more pleasant pastime, which is our best of the year picks. And uh, let's start with the best actors. For me, 2018 offered an embarrassment of riches, especially on Broadway, where sometimes it seemed as though we were seeing really great, never-to-be-forgotten performances every week. But I, I called out these performances when I wrote my Wall Street Journal end of the year column, which all struck me as, as extra special. Um, first of all, in a play, um, I think just about everybody in town was talking about J.O. Sanders in uh, Richard Nelson's uh, small-scale production of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. That was, that was a career-capping performance by a, a, a it's not right to call him a journeyman actor. That implies a dispraise, and it's not what I mean. But he's somebody that we're used to, we've seen a lot, he's always solid. 
and he's pretty much always memorable. But finally, he's in the title role, and he kills and gives a performance that, honestly, I can close my eyes and see and hear, and I think I always will. Uh, on the other end of the age scale, um, uh, but partly the same play, uh, Bedlam did its mashup, uh, Uncle Romeo, Vanya, Juliet. And uh, in it uh, was Zuzana Skatkowski, uh, who uh, played Yelena and Juliet, uh, both characters. An actor a little bit on the old side for Juliet by our present day standard. She's closing in on 40. Uh, doesn't Maybe doesn't look quite like what we expect that role to look like. And she also killed. She came on like a blowtorch and uh, gave what for me, and there was a lot of competition, was the, the best uh, female performance of the year in a play. Uh, in a musical, uh, I was really touched by an actor whom I've had problems with in the past, Brooks Ashmanskas in The Prom. Uh, you don't you you don't usually congratulations for yes, saying that. Yes, you don't that, usually think yeah, you don't that. usually think of memorable acting rather than singing acting in a musical, but he took that part and made something that was clearly just drawn from the marrow in it, and I loved it. I just loved what he did with it. Uh, Elizabeth, you were talking about Carmen Jones, and <clears throat> for me, the best. Uh, a performance by a woman in a musical this past year was Anika Nani Rose in Carmen Jones. Uh, uh, a woman in a red dress who came into a small space and raised the temperature by about 30 degrees. A really, really fabulous, fabulous performance. Let's get out of town for my, for my best ensemble cast of the year. Uh, I went to People's Light, which is a theater company in Malvern, a suburb of, of Pennsylvania to see a play I've, I've always wanted to see done uh, from the 30s, Paul Osborne's Mornings at Seven, uh, directed by Abigail Adams, who is the uh, uh, artistic director of the company. Most of the characters are older men and women, and they were all played by veterans of this company, people who have worked together in show after show over a period of 20, 30 years. I have never in my life seen better ensemble acting than I saw in that production. It was, I, I don't use this phrase lightly, it was truly Broadway-worthy in a play that is very much deserving of revival. Um, uh, so that's that's what I saw in the way of acting that is going to stay with me for a long time to come. Mm, interesting choices, Terry. Uh, uh, my list, I'll, I'll, I'll run it down. Uh, best actor in a play this year for me was I'm So Sorry, Elizabeth. Jeff Daniels in oh uh, my To God. Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, my God. Holy yeah, crap. Yeah, hold the phone, folks. Jeff Daniels, just a, uh, I just thought it, it moved me, um, and I trust my gut, and he made me weep. And that is, to me, you know, what great acting sometimes is able to do, make you feel. Well, he's a good, he's a good stage actor. He really um, is. Best actress, hands down for me. And again, Broadway, Elaine May in Waverly Gallery, uh, mm, yeah. the most mm. meticulously uh, 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 created perform uh, creation of a woman uh, whose uh, capacities are uh, escape are are escaping her, are leaving her by degree. I thought it was a very, very, very persuasive performance, and I hope she wins a Tony. That said, I mean, I'm looking forward to some other really good performances coming in, in, the, in the 
in the spring. If I may, let me give you a little bit of insight on that. David Cromer, who was also in the cast of uh, The Waverly Gallery, posted on Facebook the other day. He said, you know, he spends every night up on the stage with her and that she keeps changing. She keeps finding new things. The, the performance just gets better, deeper, more interesting. Uh, really a, a reminder that we who only see shows just before they open, maybe we don't even see these wonderful performers at their best. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, so true. Uh, my best actor in a musical is two guys who shared the stage in Washington at the Kennedy Center, Raul Esparza and Ramin Karimlu, uh, in a concert revival of Chess, which is mm. not a great musical. Mm. It's got a great score. And they oh my God. their uh, performances together as the chess uh, oh. opponents, in, yeah, I know, uh, was exciting. They are real stars of the musical stage, and it's thrilling to see that kind of energy uh, exploded. I will say, I don't think it was a great uh, year for musical theater actors um, on Broadway or elsewhere. It just didn't have that kind of uh, oomph. But I thought they they gave it was it was really memorable. And best actress in a musical for me was Mara Winningham in Girl from the North Country. Mm, yeah, she was I good too. I, I think there's just uh, that's a really tough part she plays in that piece as a damaged a woman of damage that we're of, that's fairly mysterious. Uh, but she uh, has the musical chops and the acting chops, and she made it uh, hers. She she's incredible at playing sadness. Mir Wingham yes. plays sadness. Yeah. Like, that's a good that's, uh, Just right. She's brilliant at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. And it's not that. just like, oh, I'm going to mope around. She's just, oh, it's in her bones. She's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, the ensemble, for ensemble work, you know, it's it, it's always, a, that's a hard one always to sort of narrow down. But I'm going to give my uh, award to Dance Nation at Playwrights Horizons be, for the simple reason that the assignment given to the the, the women in that play and one man was to play teenage girls and the uh, the age range in which they had to do that was from you know some I guess there were a couple mm -hmm. in their 20s to someone in their 70s yes uh, they're playing the, the the members of a of a competitive dance team in Ohio and I thought that the uh, achievement of making it seamless across the age spectrum uh, that they could all play at seemingly the same level this range this range of characters they could all approximate it and make you feel as if you were watching eight or nine or ten teenage I, girls was remarkable and the, and and uh, lee sunday evans did a great job directing them i i totally second that that would be also my choice for best ensemble and i hope that show i would love to see it again actually and i hope they're going to do like the wolves and keep like bringing yeah, it I mean, back it's the, right. I, I think it may be the show times. i most regret missing in it's in the i really season. hope it comes back um well, for me, actually, I'm going to single out two two actors uh, who have enjoyed very much this year, and each one did two plays this year, uh, and they're both kind of pillars of the New York theater scene. And basically, every time I see their name in a cast list, I'm, that that just makes me happy. It doesn't matter what the show is; I'm always happy to see them. So one is Deirdre O'Connell. Mm. Uh, who had two great turns this year, one in Terminus. She really had to carry it. Uh, and the other one, they're both actually off-off Broadway, both of them, not even off-off-off. And the other one was Thunder Bodies. Uh, Thunder Bodies. Oh my God, this is, I'm pulling off a sponge. SpongeBob. SpongeBob. Thunder Bodies. Bo Thunder Bodies. Bo I was thinking Love about that. 
Thunderbodies, uh, a, a bad play by Kit Tarker, but what <laughs> the relish, the gusto with which Deirdre Connell just kind of bit into a part. Oh, it was so satisfying. I was thrilled. It was, she turned her monologues into, well, they basically were musical numbers. She was not singing, but they were musical numbers. Uh, and the other one is Lois Smith. And Lois Smith, lest we take her for granted, well, we should not, because um, she, the first show she was in was Peace for Mary Frances, uh, directed by Lada Nogabar, who's <laughs> everywhere. And the second one uh, was, uh, she was in Craig Lucas, I Was Most Alive With You, a play I liked a lot, actually. Um, it was a bit of a mess, but I still liked it a lot. And um, Lois Mess was 90-something? Oh well, I don't know, ageless. Let's just say ageless. Yeah, good way to put it. Uh, ageless-ish. Uh, she had to learn sign language for that play. Like, is there anything she can't do? She's unbelievable. So... Yeah, for them. And I will also put in a, a word for Billy Piper in, in Yerma at the Park Avenue Armory, which was a completely, I just don't understand how she could do that performance night after night. Um, and uh, yeah, and I completely endorse. And I would also say that how much I adored Stephanie Block, Stephanie J. Block in The Share Show. Well, and I'm. Yes. Yeah, that's, I know. That's an, no. that's an award. Did, that's a Purple Heart. She hey. did the job. Award. She did the job. No, it's more than that, you guys. You just are sour pusses. <laughs> God. <laughs> Jesus. Stephanie Block plays the oldest share, or she, the least she, young share, as I put it in least my young. review. <laughs> she plays the least young share. <laughs> she plays the... The share who uh, reveals those butt cheeks that you guys should unclench and let Ooh. yourself enjoy this piece of glorious fluff. I have to say, I, I kind of screamed at that show. I did. I know. I did. Well, I kind of <laughs> screamed at it too. Yeah, right. Ah, Real, ah. Oh my God. Okay. I, I screamed in a good what way. What else you got? Um, I'm, I'm, that's it for What's me. Your song? Oh, your ensemble is Dance Nation, right. right I right. Uh, completely support yeah, 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 yeah. Dance Thank Nation. You. Thank you. So on to the best director of the year. Uh, we've already mentioned her more than once. For me, it was one of our previous guests on Three on the Isle, Lila Neugebauer, who hit the target twice off-Broadway with Edward Albee's At Home at the Zoo and Tracy Letts's Mary Page Marlowe, and once on Broadway with the White Willie Gallery. Prior to this year, I thought of her as an up-and-comer, but I think We'd all have to agree that she has now officially arrived and is uh, going to be somebody that uh, we expect to see uh, several mm -hmm. times each year on and off Broadway. She is the real deal. What about you, Peter? I would pick Connor McPherson for the achievement of, I think, reimagining the jukebox musical uh, and uh, making Girl from the North Country something incredibly memorable, important, beautiful, and the experience was sort of transcendent for me of hearing Dylan's music used uh, to heighten the emotional uh, 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 landscape of uh, life in a boarding house in Minnesota during the Depression. We don't see a lot of writer-directors over here, do we? I mean, that's not something that's as no. common in the United States. Right. Well, you see no. some playwrights, as we talked to Kenny Lonergan, when we talked to Kenny Lonergan, talking about wanting to direct. Yeah, he does it well. Uh, um, so, I mean, and there are 
some playwrights who will direct their own work, but as you say, it's not a uh, it's not a hybrid we see a lot of. Well, I, I think there's also this image, you know, uh, Todd Solons, who's a director who made his playwriting debut and he directed his own playwriting debut. He said that when when he was growing up, he was really under the impression that writing and directing were completely separate jobs in the theater, and he said he was really living. Like just completely believing in this, like he was very impressed by the uh, the kind of mythical image of the relationship between uh, Elia Kazan and 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 Miller or, or Williams. Like he really had this image in his head of the way those teams work. And then he thought, well, I write my own screenplays for the movies. Why can't I direct my own play? And he said, once he got over that, that idea, this mythical idea of the collaboration between writer and director, it was much easier for him. I don't know whether or not that was a good idea, but it's interesting that it's still, that image is still looming, I think, uh, mm-hmm. in the kind of collective unconscious of American theater. Mm. Well, um, I mean, my own experience is I, I wouldn't ever want to direct the first production of any play that I wrote. Mm-hmm. I just feel that at that stage, I need to have the writer cap on firmly and exclusively. And when I come in later on to direct a subsequent production of it, as I've done twice now with Satchel at the Waldorf, uh, you know, I don't feel like the writer. I feel like... Well, interestingly, mm-hmm. with, with um, Girl from the North Country, it was actually Matthew Warchus, I believe, who was directing it originally. And in the rehearsal room, he, he, uh, uh, Con- he turned to Connor, he said, you know, you should direct this. Mm. So it, he sort of turned it back over to the playwright, which was interesting. That's an interesting. It's wise, I suspect. I mean, that that yeah. takes a real self-abnegation. I'm very impressed right. by it. Uh, well, for my best director pick for me, that would be. I would have to. I would. One would be Simon Stone for mm-hmm. Yerma. Mm. Tour de Force. Great. Absolutely. I've. Right. N- I still don't know how he did it. Right. I, I can't figure it I out. Know. It's. It's, uh, it's magic. It. It really was like a puzzle happening right in front of us. Um, and then the other one would be Daniel Fish uh, mm. for his uh, Oklahoma, which um, actually a musical I had never seen live. Um, so that was my first live experience of Oklahoma. And um, it's a reinvention that stays, that I think is very true to the show. Even though I have to admit, I have no idea what that story ballet, what the hell was going on there. <laughs> it was puzzle, puzzling, but not in a good way necessarily. But the show was still so good that I was just like, okay, I'm just not getting this. But it did not antagonize me. I was just like, I'm just really not getting this. Mm. But they're, they're trying to do something. I'm not getting it. But it, it's one of those moments. I, I, it can be very exciting when you're not quite sure what they're trying to do, but it doesn't rile you up i don't know if i don't know what i'm trying to say that but i felt like okay i'm not getting it but okay you're trying something Mm. um and that's worth a lot for me Mm. Mm. well best musical i i will return once again to one of our previous three on the aisle guests aaron mckeown who collaborated with chiaria alegria hudis on miss you like hell a pop musical which is to put it reductively about illegal immigration in America, though of course there's much more to it than that. A beautiful, touching show that should have done much better than it did off-Broadway, and I am hoping that it has a regional afterlife worthy of its quality. Peter, mm. what stood out for you? Yeah, I, I I liked Miss You Like Hell. I did feel like it probably, it's one of those pieces that could have used another... Um, another uh, can use another incarnation, maybe another workshop to really bring it to the 
to another level, but I thought the performances were wonderful. Um, but what's, what really stood out for me this year was, I think it's no surprise, uh, uh, Girl from the North Country. Yeah, no, we, I'm, we saw I'm, that coming. Yeah, I, I'm sorry that I, I that I haven't picked a musical with an original score, but I think it was the closest thing to turning uh, some some an, from this found music into an original score because I think it was repurposed in a way that you rarely see uh, the work of a rock or folk artist uh, uh, transformed for the stage, and um, and I just thought uh, it had it had layers of feeling that I miss in most of the work that's done, which is most musicals these days, it feels like they're all about pumping up the noise and, you know, making the dancers, you know, sort of look like, uh, you know, uh, pieces of machinery that, you know, are, you know, are quickly, uh, you know, churning out of control. Uh, and and it, they all feel like carbon copies of each other. In, in, um, so, so that one really stood out to me as original. Elizabeth, what have you got up your uh, sleeve? Well, for me, yeah, Girl from the North Country, I really, really enjoyed that. I, as someone who has never really connected with Dylan, I, I can't say that I don't like him, but it's just like I really have not connected. Uh, but I, I want to put in a word for a small musical that I saw at the York Theater um, that everybody I know who saw it loved. And it was a very, it's a very promising show. It's It's a young show, and it's, Promising, and I really want to see more from uh, the composer Mart Sonnenblick. Um, it's a show called Midnight at the Never Get. Uh, it's very small scale. It roots in cabaret show, uh, but it has a very clever script with a great plot twist at the end. Uh, and what Mark Sonnenblick does in recreating I don't want to say past, I don't want to say pastiche because there's an underlying element of parody to a pastiche that is that's not what they do, but he writes the score in a kind of 1950s 60s American songbook tradition, and it is so perfect. Uh, it's not a tribute, but it just really writes in that form because the story is set in the 60s, and it is so he completely captures that songwriting technique to such a point that I really felt like they were covers. Uh, wow. it's, it's just really, it's, it's, it's a great, great score. Very impressive. Uh, I really want to hear more from, from that guy, Mark Sonnenblick. It's a great time. And I also, mm. I'll, yes, I know. Right. Um, and I'll also want to say that, um, <laughs> Jewbox musicals, those poor bastard children of the American musical. I think I've had a really good year actually, because I think we've seen, some shows that are trying to do something with the form. I don't think the form is going anywhere. <laughs> we have to live with it. And so at least we saw shows that try to do something with it. And by that, I mean Head Over Heels, the Go-Go's jukebox musical, uh, is a very fun and sneakily smart show. And I, I am going to go to bat for the share show as a show that may not be good, Wait. but is kind of great. As best musical? No, 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 oh. no, no. As no, as innovative. As, as it's innovative. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, as illustrating the fact that you, it is possible to do a good jukebox musical. And I, I'm, I'm saying it is not, it is not a good show per se, but it, it's kind of a great show. And I think we should do a whole podcast about shows that are not good but are kind of great. 
I'm mean, your shameless pitch for the share audience to join us on this <laughs> podcast is absolutely horrendous. My, my, my sheer uh, craven it's appeal craven. To, for the know, share audience yeah, to I, join us at the Broadway yeah. Con panel we're doing in January. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, yes. in that case, I am shameless. The situation. Well, the calls. question is: Are you young share, middle share, or older share? <laughs> Clearly, all three of them at once. I contain multitudes. I contain a multitude of shares. <laughs> well, let me modulate and harmonically to our last category: right. the best new play of 2018. As far as my choice goes, New York is behind the curve. It's Tom Stoppard's The Hard Problem which had already been produced in England uh, at mm. Chicago's Court mm -hmm. Theater and at Philadelphia's Wilma Theater by the time it finally landed at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater, which is Lincoln Center Theater's off-Broadway house. That choice is telling in itself, since Lincoln Center evidently didn't think that the hard problem would go over sufficiently well on Broadway. Maybe not, but for me, it was memorable in every way, so much so that I actually said in my review that the play left no doubt that Stoppard is the George Bernard Shaw of our time. I, I guess I'm leading with my chin, but time will tell. And I expect that we will be talking about Tom Stoppard for a long, long time to come. Peter? Uh, God help well, us. I, I will just say, Terry, I, I, I long to see what you saw in that play. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't find it uh, uh, a, a coherent uh, statement. And I thought it also was kind of, for a man who is an extraordinary i know we, uh, this is not even something that elizabeth would agree with who is an extraordinary master of 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 plot and structure i thought it was kind of obvious uh and um and not worthy of his in the incredible some of the incredible stuff that came before i do agree that he's you know a wonder of a playwright but Just i didn't this one didn't work tom for me. stop <laughs> That's pretty funny. All That's right. a good line. Um, all right, so my choice, and I'm taking this as best. I'm taking this category as best American play because yeah. I do think that the Ferryman is an extraordinary achievement. But um, I tallied up the votes that were that I that I took uh, within my own brain, and it came out a tie <laughs> between uh, Jackie Sibley's Drury's Fairview and Claire Barron's Dance Nation, which I thought were uh, hand in hand. Uh, the, some of the most interesting, startling, and surprising work that we've seen uh, on on any stage, uh, it, it, you know, uh, and and really signaled to me uh, a a time that we're we're of, of, of emerging voices that really want to challenge the way we see plays and see characters on stages. And so I, my hat's off to both of them, and I can't wait to see their next plays. I, for me, it's uh, Fairview. I completely agree. Uh, Jackie Sibley's story is Fairview. I, had, I was also a big fan of her previous play. Well, actually, no, it was like two plays ago, but the her kind of the one that really put on the map. Uh, we are proud to present. It's a very long title, um, and also at Soho Rep. Um, and the runner-up would be uh, Samuel D. Hunter, which. Scott, I think he may be one of my very, very favorite play American playwrights, too. Um, he has a double bill called um, Lewiston Clarkston, two one-act plays that are really meant to be presented together. And uh, the production of the Rattlestick, we, you get a, a communal dinner in between, so you can get to chat with your fellow audience member. It's done for 50 people at a time, or 51, I think. Um, and 
It is lovely. Um, all these plays are set um, in the Idaho Panhandle, and so is this one. Um, I, oh God, it's really, I, I, he really, he touches me in mm. a way that very, very few, on a completely emotional uh, mm -hmm. level that I find I have a hard time verbalizing mm. the way he really touches me, his yeah. characters touch me in a way he's there there's not an ounce of of pathos but it is he's writing is so i absolutely adore sam hunter yeah and he had a couple of like kind of just okay ones but that one is back he's back in full form he, he really has an home. emotional through story mm -hmm. uh, his his plays yeah. right well i guess that brings us to a close both for this episode and for the full the first full season of three on the aisle it has been a very good year for this podcast which was just starting to find its footing 12 months ago, and now seems to be on its way to becoming a fixed star on the theatrical horizon. I think that quote goes on the marquee for our, when we, <laughs> when we take over the Walter Kerr Theater the Walter for an Kerr, entire you, you, you season. I, I like the Belasco, it's a nice... Okay. We've had this fight before, Elizabeth. <laughs> I am not going to that side of Broadway. Wait, you don't think we can? Okay, well, let, I, I want to be on the on the okay, uh, between fine. you know between Broadway and Eighth. We have to fine. be. Fine. Okay. Well, we should. You know, we should. And, and the Belasco is okay. haunted. We should either be the <laughs> Kerr or the Brooks Atkinson, obviously. There you go. Right. Okay. That's the, I hadn't even thought of that. Yes. Well, and as you can Clearly. see, folks, we're not going anywhere. We're going to haunt you all through 2019 if you allow <laughs> us to. Uh, we have so, plenty of plans. Uh, for for fun on this podcast, and by the way, uh, tell us your favorites for 2018. Yes, we want to hear if we're completely off base or that if we're in, we're in sync with you. Mm -hmm. So we hope to surprise you in the coming year as well. Well, the first big surprise is going to be okay, you guys. I'm so excited about this. We're we're going to do our first live podcast at Broadway Con with our people. Yay! <laughs> or I I hope so because otherwise we're going to be Torn, torn apart by hyenas. My, uh, my brother and, says he'll come. Oh, <laughs> so, you know, we may have Yay, to, okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, so it's the 12th of January. Um, go to broadwaycon.com, and we're, we're there in our full glory on the schedule. Uh, forget the exact time. It's like early afternoon. So our plans to have, like, fantastic, the fantastic star of the share show and, and uh, has fallen through because they're going to have a matinee. So. And Terry has promised to sign copies of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> 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 it's at 1.45, 45 p.m. on January 12th. It's a Saturday. We have nothing better to do. Midtown. You know, I know yeah. even if there's a blizzard that will not stop you from flying in. You'll ski in. You'll ski in. You'll fly in from the West yeah. Coast. And for our Australian listeners, you have plenty of time. <laughs> you have plenty of time right. to book your flights. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I happen to know it's your summer vacation and you have like weeks so you can really... Do you want me to do my Australian accent again? Yeah, please it's do. Very... Like, yes, Goodbye, we... Mike. Sorry, oh, no. sorry. Okay. I know, it's horrible. Oh my All God, right. it's anyway, so good. We're getting silly. I'm sorry. Peter Marks. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachout. You have been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the gravity-defying Kirby Pate. Ooh, good one. It's Kirby and Idina Menzel. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Both are spelled out. Please let us know if there are topics you'd like to hear on future podcasts. 
And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. A five-star review or rating. That would be preferable. Yes. Thanks for listening. We will be with you again soon on The Isle. Thank you.